As a kid, did you ever do that thing where you kind of planned out how your life was going to look? Did you ever do that kind of, you worked out how many kids you were going to have and what they'd be called and what age you'd get married and, and all that kind of stuff. Did anyone else do that? Anyone? Yeah, I did that. Well, what age did you decide that you were going to get married? I remember when I was, I was younger, I decided that I wanted to be married when I was 29, because it felt like, I know that was a bit later than a lot of people I knew were getting married, and I, I knew that that kind of meant waiting, but I thought, I want to enjoy life first. I want to have a bit of fun before kids come and ruin everything. I want to be able to travel and laugh and have a social life and, you know, be fun for a while. Um, but then, obviously, I, I don't want to leave it into your 30s, because, you know, being single in your 30s is terrible. So I didn't want that. But 29, that felt like, you know, I'm mature enough to wait that long, but definitely no longer than that. That was my plan, married at 29. Well, I'm now 33. (laughs) And for those of you who are particularly observant, you might have noticed that there's no ring on my finger. I've never been married. And I've spent 22 (laughs) of the 33 years of my life single. Now, it's interesting. Pause for a second. Everyone said, ah, be interested to see how you're feeling at the end of the talk. Just kind of hold on to that feeling. <laughs> You've kind of set yourself up there. <laughs> now, I've spent 32 of the 33 years of my life single. And despite that, I'm actually in a season of life now where I'm dating. I'm dating the wonderful Catherine, who many of you will know. Uh, she leads our, our student work and... Uh, you're setting yourself up again, guys. I'm loving it. This is great. But we'll say that was a round of applause for Catherine, not the fact that my life is now finally decent because I'm in a relationship. Um, <laughs> Catherine is amazing. She needs our student work. But one of the things that's been really helpful about being in a relationship is it's allowed me to uh, solidify and confirm more of my beliefs about singleness and about romance and marriage and all the kind of things that we're going to look at this morning. Now, for me, uh, in my experience, uh, singleness is something that hardly ever gets talked about in church. I've been in church every Sunday of my entire life, and I think in my whole life I've maybe perhaps uh, heard one sermon on singleness in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of visits to church. I think I've heard maybe one sermon on singleness. Now, as New Community Church, we're family. This isn't a club. This isn't some organization. You haven't turned up to a society this morning. We are a family. And that's why we're going to talk about things like singleness and the different topics we've been discussing over these last few weeks. Because whether or not you're someone who's single, this is something that will be affecting your life. There'll be people in your life who are single, who you need to kind of uh, help and speak to and talk to about their singleness in the right way. And all of us here will have different experiences. There'll be people who are here today and are single and loving it, single and hating it, married and loving it, (laughs) married and hating it. (laughs) Don't nudge anyone next to you if you've come with your husband or wife. There'll be some who've been married for a matter of months, others for years, others for decades. There'll be some of us here who um, are single not out of choice, 
There'll be some who've um, never dated, some who've dated many times, some who've been married and are now divorced, some who are widowed. There'll be people here this morning who are dealing with rejection and regret and confusion. People are here this morning trying to work out their sexuality and what sex is all about and trying to understand that in a world that seems to have redefined everything. And all of us have opinions and beliefs about singleness in marriage. All of us will be shaped by those experiences, by the the voice of our culture, of those people around us. And as Christians, all of us will have been shaped by our church family, by the voices of other Christians. And it's so important for us to look at what are those voices saying. See, this series we're going through is called In the World, but Not of the World. It's saying we're, we're, we're part of our society, part of our culture. The message isn't, all right, guys, here's the plan. We're going to go and buy a warehouse and make a commune and retreat from society and wear kind of bonnets and like old-fashioned clothing and switch off our TVs. That's not the message. We're in the world. We're not retreating from it. But though we're in it, we're not of it. We're living out a better story. But we need to know the story that our world is saying and seeing how much actually are we different than that story. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning when it comes to relationships and dating and marriage and singleness. So what is culture saying to us? What is the message of our world? Well, you don't have to listen too much to be able to hear it. The message of our culture is clear. You need to be having sex. You need to be in a romantic relationship if you're going to be happy. We're obsessed with it. Turn on your radio, all our songs. Go to the cinema, all our films, TV, Love Island. Who's coupling up? What's happening? Everywhere on social media. Our top selling books, one of the the biggest selling books of the past decade, Fifty Shades of Grey. This is nothing new. It was around in the 60s. Dean Martin, I love those old school singers like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Some of you, hopefully you know who he is, a big, big time crooner from the 60s. He sang, you're nobody, you're nobody until somebody loves you. You're no one. Your life isn't of value yet. Your life isn't really reached the climax yet until someone loves you. And then you've reached it. That was the message of the 60s. Has it changed much? Well, what about the 90s? That's when I was a teenager growing up. What was the most popular TV show of the 90s? It's made a massive comeback on Netflix. It's shaped a generation like no other TV show has even come close to doing. What was the show? Friends. Friends. Shaped millions upon millions of lives. And what was the classic conversation that they regularly were having? How long has it been since you last have sex? How long has it been, Joey? Three months. You haven't had sex for three months. Whoo! No wonder you're going crazy. That must be mental. Three months without sex. Man. Whew. Our songs, our films, our magazines, all of these things screaming a message at us that most of us take in without ever questioning. You need to be having sex. You need to be in a relationship if you're going to be happy if you're going to be fulfilled, if you're going to be safe. 
So what about church? How have we done in church? Have we, uh, have we given a different message? Well, in my experience, as I say, having been in church, lots of different denominations throughout my life, I would say that we have a high value on marriage. We value marriage very, very highly. What's happened is we've seen from around the 60s of the sexual revolution that marriage has been uh, redefined and rejected. That we say, you know, we don't need this anymore. Kind of, we, we can define what free love looks like. And as a reaction to that, as churches, we've wanted to speak against that. And I think that's really important that we've done that. And we've had things like marriage courses and tons of books on marriage and how to build healthy marriages. We've had sermons on it, conversations about it, and that's great. We've talked about how it's a good thing, not something just to reject or redefine. But I would ask this, has our message actually been all that different? See, our culture is saying, you need to find love. And my experience in a lot of churches is the message has been, you need to find love. Just make sure you get married. How different have we been? Because I would ask, at the root, have we often had the same focus as our culture? See, in a desire to defend and to commend marriage, I would ask, have we idolized it? We find that we have the same obsession as we do in wider culture here in our churches. And instead of being in the world but not of it, we can often be in the world and just like it. See, this idolizing of marriage is, isn't just something kind of, you know, you can take my word for it. I think you can see it in the people around us and in our own lives. So first of all, I think we can see it in church in the way in which singles talk about and live to do with marriage. Singles who are desperate to be in a relationship, constantly looking for someone, constantly thinking about it, constantly talking about it. It's the big focus, it's the big fear, it's the big pain. And for some, the, the, the longing to be married is so strong. I, I've even had this with close friends of mine. That in their 20s, in their 30s, they've walked away from church as singles because they're just, I'm tired of God telling me that there's restrictions on who I can marry and not. For some, the idolization of marriage has become such that um, the passion that they once had to say, God, you're first in my life. Nothing comes above you. Gradually, time passes and the singleness becomes harder. And once they were running one way and then they say, well... I might just kind of compromise a little bit and surely it's not that big a thing if I'm with someone who's not running after God as well. Surely that doesn't make too big of a difference if they're running in a different direction. And all of a sudden, the most important thing in life is no longer God. And we see the idolizing of marriage and the actions of married people too. Some of the things that married people say to singles, this could get uncomfortable for a few people here. Here are a few things that you may have heard or you may have said. And all of these have been said in our church. And I want to ask you, what is the message that is being said behind the things that are being said? I don't understand. You're too nice to be single. Isn't God faithful? 
she finally found a husband. I just wish you were married and could have the happiness that I have. Don't worry. There is someone for you. I'm so pleased you finally found someone. I was wondering if it would ever happen. Make sure you don't screw this relationship up. or You may may never get a better chance to be married. Those are all things that have been said to me or my friends in the past year in this church. This isn't an outside problem. We idolize marriage. We make it the pinnacle of life. The source of joy and hope and peace, the, the final step of the kind of onto the, the plinth, the, the podium, the, the, the platform of life that says you've made it, you're there. We've made it God and it's become an idol. And see, the problem with anything you do that becomes a, take, goes from being a good thing to become a God thing is that what you idolize, you demonize. What do I mean by that? See, when you you take something and make it God, and you put all your hopes and dreams in it, because it's not God, it can only disappoint you. So this thing you idolize, we see it time and time again, it's like, if I'm just married, if I'm just married, I'll never be lonely. I'll never struggle with uh, being kind of lustful and not being able to fill it out. I'll I'll never struggle with my my self-esteem when I'm married. And then you get married, and you get your God. And it doesn't live up to the expectations. Yeah, they're good, but they're not God. And so what you idolized, you now demonize. Because they can't live up to that expectation. They can't be your God. And we see that time and time and time again. So if our culture makes an idol of romantic relationships, and our churches can often too, what does God What does the one who made marriage and sex in relationships, what does he have to say about it? Well, let me ask you this. What does God want most for us? Is it his will that we would be married or single? Now, be honest, because you all know what I'm trying to kind of get at here, but be honest in yourself. What do you think God wants most for your life? Or for others' lives? What's more valuable? Which is the gift from God? Both. Both. Both singleness and marriage are gifts. They're beautiful. They're wonderful gifts from God. And they're gifts for the same reason. They're beautiful for the same reason. They both show the gospel. They both show the gospel. They both demonstrate the good news of Jesus in amazing ways. Sam Albury says this, Marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel, and singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel. Let's unpack that. Marriage is a picture of the, of the shape of the gospel, Marriage reflects Christ's love for the church, the shape, what it looks like. Marriage reflects Christ's love for the church, his bride. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
That verse is saying that marriage is a picture of the gospel. The sacrificial love and commitment that Jesus has for his bride. For us, the church. Secondly, singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. Our world is screaming, as we've seen, you need to be in a relationship. And in the context of that blaring message, your life as a content and joyful, celibate single Christian, your message that you proclaim to the watching world is Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You can know satisfaction. You can know happiness. You can know fulfillment. You can know contentment. You can have fun. You can be worthy without being in a relationship because of Jesus and through his church that he gives. You can have all that you need. You're not lacking. You haven't got God's plan B for your life. What a message to the outside world. I've seen this firsthand in my own life. I, uh, I was meeting up with a guy who was exploring faith. And you know when you're, you're trying to share with your friends or family members or colleagues about, uh, about your faith and it doesn't really seem to be getting through and you're sending them this video you saw on YouTube or trying them to get, read that book that they never read and then I'll send them an article instead and they don't read that either. And you know, you're just trying this and that and trying to show them that God is real and God is good and it doesn't seem to be working. Well, I was having that with this guy who I'd been meeting up with. And uh, we kind of got to the point where he, I think he understood what it meant to be a Christian and what was involved. And if you're like me, you've probably had this experience where you're talking about one thing and that person's come to kind of right the edge of maybe giving their life to God. And then the big question that they really want to ask comes up. Have you ever had that? You're like, wait, we weren't even talking about that. So I said all this stuff to my friend and, and then he, he turned to me and said, so let me get this straight. If I become a Christian, you're telling me that unless I get married, I can never have sex again for the rest of my life. Seriously. Like, that's the message of Christianity. And in kind of more words, and I kind of, you know, elaborated it a bit more, I effectively said to him, yes. I was like, that is how I've lived my life and how I continue to live my life until one day I'm married or until I die. Because Jesus is worth it. And of all the things I'd said, of all the videos and articles and books and things I'd done to demonstrate that God was real, nothing stood out to him more than seeing someone who didn't just talk the talk, but was willing to lay down the thing that our culture says is most valuable. See, he thought I was just part of some kind of new... You know, in your, your family, oh, it's nice you found religion. Well, when you tell someone you've given up sex for your entire life and are willing to do that for the rest of your days unless you're married, it says a powerful message. The world is watching, and we have an opportunity to tell them that Christ is enough. Godly singleness sends a powerful proclamation. So what does God's view of marriage and singleness lead us to? What are the practical outworkings of this belief? Well, first of all, it leads us to embrace the season you're in. Embrace the season you're in. 
So many of us are waiting for life to start. Waiting for it. It's just around the corner, just after that one hurdle. Then life will begin. This is a, a terrible, terrible problem for many of us singles. We just say, when I'm married, then life will start. I wasted too much of my life, too many hours, too many emotions, too many reading into texts of people not replying to me who I fancy, too many hours of thinking, will I be good enough, too much of my attention on what could be rather than what I already have. I spent too much time thinking about what might happen rather than what God had given me for today. See, marriage is great. But so is singleness. And the world talks constantly about how good it is to be in a relationship. But how often do we talk about the blessings of singleness? Because the Bible talks about it. And perhaps if we did too, it might not be so painful for the singles amongst us. Perhaps we wouldn't dislike and demote singleness so much. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What Paul is saying is that a spouse and a family rightly take up your attention. They rightly take up your time. If they don't, then something is wrong. They're supposed to. That's the right way it's meant to be. But what he's also saying is that as a single person, you have a unique opportunity to give more of that time, attention, and emotion to the things of the Lord. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Mike Pilavachi, some of you may have heard of him. He is the founder of Soul Survivor. He has touched the lives, not just of tens of thousands of youth, but of many, many adults, including myself. He's traveled around the globe and had a huge impact in the kingdom of God. I once heard him speak on singleness, and he said that he couldn't have done half the things that he's done if he'd been married and had a family. In fact, he says it would have been sinful to do what he'd done as a married person, as it would have meant neglecting his family. Embrace the season you're in. It's so easy to look at that person who has the life you dream of rather than look at what God has given you. Embrace what you have. Don't spend all your time focusing on what you don't have, but what you do. If you're single, see it as a blessing. See it as a unique gift, whether it's for a few more months, for a few more years, or until the day you die where marriage will no longer exist and there'll be no more loneliness, no more confusion, no more disappointment, just perfect joy between Christ and his bride. And remember this, God doesn't undervalue singles. 
They're not second class or incomplete or disqualified or any less valuable. And if you're ever tempted to do that, look at Jesus. Jesus, the one who came into, uh, as a, a single man into a culture and into a religious backdrop that despised singleness even more than our own. He came into a content when the rabbis were teaching this. Imagine if you heard this at church. Any man, this is a quote that the rabbi said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. The man who is not married at 20 is what? He is living in sin. And against that backdrop, Jesus came to earth as a single unmarried man, a complete human being. And then he chose Paul, a single man, to take his good news to the nations. And he's been using singles in powerful ways ever since. Now, in case you're uh, thinking I'm, I'm kind of preaching that being single is always really easy, always a, a walk in the park, it isn't. If you're someone here who's single and really struggling, I fully understand that. See, it's often very, very difficult. It's sometimes extremely painful. There'll be times where, even like today, you'll see kids running around and you think, oh, I'd love to have my own kids. I'd love that. There'll be times you're speaking very honestly where you'll feel aroused and think, I would just love to have sex. Moments where you'll, maybe you'll be on Facebook and you'll, you'll see a picture of someone who you probably should have deleted a while back, but you didn't because you were too needy and kept stalking them at the time. And they were someone you were into and they just weren't into you. And then you see that picture of them with their new guy or girl and those feelings of rejection and, uh, and what could have been and, and the pain of loss start rearing their head. There'll be the times you want to share a moment with someone and, and celebrate and there's, there's no one with you to share the moment. Like I remember when I went to New York, I had a layover there and I thought, I'll go into New York on my own and explore. And I remember that vividly the first time I ever saw the Statue of Liberty. It was amazing and I hated it. Because there was no one to share it with. I wanted to talk about how it's so cool, how in that movie this had happened. Remember that? And I was on my own. There'll be birthdays. Usually the painful ones, like the 30s and 40s and the decades adding up, where you're reminded of where life is really at. The couples nights you hear about but didn't get invited to. Social times where everyone is talking about weddings and uh, their uh, kids' football team or uh, kind of reminding you just how easy it is. I wish I was single. It was so easy when I was single. And you're sat inside thinking, I hate this. And all of those things can hurt. I felt every single one of those. It deeply hurts. But as singles, we have many blessings And the pain of singleness diminishes drastically when you embrace the season you're in. So if you're single, don't live in limbo. And if you're married, don't live in limbo. See, like I say, all of us can have this mindset of life will start when. If you're married, you might be thinking, well, life will start when we have kids. Or life will start when we can finally afford our own home. 
Or life will finally start when we've paid off our home. Or life will start when our kids have left home because they are a nightmare. Like, have you tried having teenagers in 2020? This is impossible. Or life will start when we've paid off our kids' university debt. Or life will start when I retire. Then life will truly begin. I can enjoy all the things I really wanted to enjoy all these years. Embrace the season you're in. Take hold of what God has for you today. So secondly, embrace, firstly, embrace the season you're in. And secondly, embrace the family you're in. Recently, I watched a, a video of, uh, of a married couple talking about their relationship, and it got to the bit of the interview where they were being asked about their sex life. And because they were trying to keep it PG and, you know, kind of not say anything a bit too uncomfortable, instead of saying the word sex, they used the word intimacy. And I found that really, really interesting. Because in our culture, intimacy has now become interchangeable with sex. Don't you find that interesting? We can replace the word sex with intimacy. So what does that communicate? Well, the story goes that if you want to experience true closeness, if you want to experience that climax of life where you are so close to someone, well, the solution is clear. You need to be having sex. That's how you experience intimacy. Now, let me say something loud and clear. Something you will not hear on the BBC this week. Something you will not see in the cinemas this week. Something you won't see plastered on the front of Cosmopolitan or He or Women's Weekly or whatever you read. (laughs) That's my personal favorite. (laughs) And good housekeeping, of course. (laughs) You will not hear this message in too many other places. And to be honest, you probably won't hear it in too many churches either. The message is this. We don't need sex. We don't need marriage. You don't need them. You won't die without them. I'm 33 years old. I've never been married. I've never had sex. And you know what? I haven't died. I've enjoyed my life. I haven't exploded. It's not like Joey and Friends where the three months has turned into 30 years and I'm just kind of struggling with this ball of hormones and frustration and loneliness. No, I enjoy my life. There's a lot of days I don't like. But that's the same for everyone. God has been good to me. Jesus was the most complete human being and he was able to live without it too. See, what? We don't, we don't need sex or marriage What we need is intimacy, and they're not the same. It's why people who can be having the most sex with all sorts of people can be some of the loneliness, because singleness does not, uh, sex does not equal intimacy. And this shouldn't surprise us, because this need is at the heart of humanity. When God made Adam, they walked together in the garden, Now, can you imagine that? Now, we talk about in church about kind of experiencing the presence of God and being hungry for that. But it's kind of a a feeling that's hard to define and hard to really kind of understand and it can feel fleeting often. But Adam walked in the garden with God. 
He experienced a closeness and an intimacy that we can only dream of this side of eternity. And that's why what happens in Genesis is shocking. Because God says this. It is not good for man to be alone. You say, what? To be alone? I mean, I'm used to singing in church, God, you're all I need. And Adam's alone, even though he walked face to face with God, with no sin, with no separation, with no barrier. How is he alone? Well, God made us with a need for human intimacy, for community, for connection. So that's what he created. He gave Adam who? Eve, a partner, a supporter, a friend, a wife. And he gave them the opportunity for connection and for intimacy. He also gave them the ability to create community through childbirth, to further their relationship. So it wasn't just the two of them. God knowing that we needed more than just husband and wife. See, we are hardwired for community. It's in our DNA since the beginning of time. This isn't a new 2020 thing that Facebook has led us to feel lonely. No, we need community. And marriage is only one expression of that. Marriage is amazing. But it was never meant to be the sole solution to loneliness. I'll say that again. Marriage was never meant to be the sole solution to loneliness. To community, the family, it's central to being a Christian. It's central. It's why it makes no sense to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't do the whole church thing. Those two things are incompatible. See, community is at the heart of what it means to be the people of God. The Bible constantly talks about these things. It says we are the people of God, the family of God, the body. And look at Jesus' life. If you didn't already need convincing, how did he do it? Was he kind of a lone ranger who kind of just turned up to village to village and presented Jesus Christ ministry, sold a few books and then moved on? No. What was his first job? Get in community. Get with disciples. If anyone, you could say, well, he didn't really need it because he's kind of fully God. No, he got the disciples. He got the 72. He had his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Jesus modeled what we need. What about the early church? Open to the book of Acts in your Bible. Do they kind of graduate from that and think, you know, we're going to do our own thing now? No, read Acts 2. They were in each other's lives constantly. Sharing food, sharing money, sharing support for one another. This is at the heart of who we are. What we need, what we want at our deepest, is closeness, community, and friendship. This is what meaningful life-giving relationships look like. And that's not something just reserved for sexual partners. Sam Albury, if you want to read any book on singleness, I'd encourage you to read The Seven Myths About Singleness. Married or single, this book is incredible. And this this is what it says. That our culture imagines that intimacy only occurs in the context of sexual attraction goes to show how little our culture actually understands and really experiences true friendship. Our problem isn't that enough people aren't getting married or having sex. 
Our problem is that most of us don't have decent friendships. See, even though we're wired to need friendship, most of us have rarely experienced friendship in its truest form. Because the truth is friendship takes a lot of work. And you have to be very, very intentional. Like anything of value, you have to invest in it. And you might think, really? Is it worth it? Well, let me tell you about my own life. Because friendship has transformed my life. I have passionately invested in friends. It hasn't just been, you know, oh, well, of course, John, you know, you're a younger guy or, you know, you're not married. It's easy. Well, I'll tell you the kind of things that friendship and fighting for friendship has looked like. I have organized probably in the thousands of social events at my house. I've done things that are very controversial in our time, like replying to messages. You know that thing um, when someone texts you and then you send, some of you have never done this, but, you know, you actually send back yes or no, I'm coming or not. I know it doesn't really happen anymore, but I've tried to do that. I just don't leave the blue ticks on WhatsApp. I've written cards. I've written checks. I've opened, not checks, let's be honest, I've given money, it's just alliteration, but anyway. Um, I, I've never written a check. Um, <laughs> sounded good when I wrote it. Um, I, I've opened up my heart. I've shared my dreams. I haven't just made small talk with people and talked about how amazing it is to be a Liverpool fan at the moment or, you know, kind of how work can be challenging. No, I've, I've, I've opened up my deepest insecurities. I've told them my dreams, which feels really vulnerable too because I know they might not happen. I've said sorry because I've got things wrong often. And saying sorry is one of the most painful things. I've worked hard for it. And it definitely hasn't always been easy. If you think friendship, you'll invest in it, but as soon as they become, you know, a little bit difficult or the classic phrase we like to use now, toxic friendships and all that, I'm going to cut them out, cut them out. No, if you, if you cut them out at the first hurdle, you will never experience intimacy. Now, I, I, I've often wanted to do that myself. Even in recent weeks, I've just thought, really, is it worth it anymore? Friendships that have caused so much pain, but through all the tears and through all the frustrations... I've experienced the beauty of intimate friendship. Now, I just want to say this is something that is possible. It is possible. I preached about this at 6 o'clock church last week. And someone came up to me and said, I literally have no frame of reference for intimate friendship. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what it means to be that close with someone that you could call it an intimate relationship. Well, it takes work. It takes opening up your home, opening up your heart, but it is possible. And now some of you might be here thinking, that is so great, John, that you have some good friends. As a single guy, I'm so happy for you. That's awesome. It's all about that, isn't it? It's amazing. Good for you. Friendship is not just something that singles need. It's something for all of us. It's not just the waiting room, you sit in impatiently waiting until you finally get called into marriage and then you can leave friendship behind. No, it's something that we all need and with multiple people. One person, your spouse, was never meant to fulfill all of your relational and emotional needs. 
And besides, that is far too much a burden to place on one person. No one can handle that weight and not be broken by it. Friendship with others is one of the best things you can do for your marriage. That's why it's important for all of us, not just singles, but married people too. And as a church that is trying to be in the world and not of the world, we're supposed to look different from those who aren't part of the family of God. See, we are the family of God. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 12. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister, is my brother and sister and mother. See, our spiritual family is now our primary family, which is very, very controversial in our modern world. See, I, I, even this week, I see friends uploading pictures saying, family first, family first. And in many ways, that's a wonderful thing. I have a lovely family who I'm very close to. But the message of Christianity is that when we enter into the family of God, our spiritual family is now the family we put first. We love our kids. And the most loving thing we can do for our kids is live like God is real. Like there is something more important than them. The mission and kingdom and family of God. That is how we love our kids and be the family of God. And what are some of the ways we can do that in a diverse and busy church? Well, singles, invite yourself for our married people's houses. One thing I've learned is that for a lot of families, even leaving the house is like a military operation. I find it stressful to watch. Even sometimes when I hear at 10 a.m., you getting out the car. It's like I'm, I'm just exhausted watching you in like baby seats and kids crying. And I'm like, oh, God, thank you for making it easier to be single. This is awesome. But, um, and then you get them in and they're running and then kicking you and all that. I'm like, this, no wonder you don't want to come hang out because it's stressful just leaving the front door. So one thing I've done to try and help with that is invite myself other people to other people's houses and cook for them. And at first, you know, it's a little bit awkward when they're like, oh, no, you can't cook for us. That would be weird. I'm like, hey, look, your life is tough. Let me come around. It's not going to be fancy. It'll probably be beans, chips, and sausages. But if your kids are happy with that, me too. Invite yourselves around. Married people, include singles in your lives. Catherine, soon after she became a Christian, a couple here at New Community Church invited her into the family to be part of things. Sunday lunches, birthday parties. And they didn't just, let me say this, they didn't just do it to get a free babysitter. (laughs) Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Doing family, yes, might involve babysitting, but if your primary goal and this happens a lot in our church, is to just get a free babysitter. You've missed the point. (laughs) Another thing I love is how a couple here uh, this morning, Steve and Annette Cox, have adopted Catherine into their family. Catherine's parents, who aren't Christians, live a long way away in Birmingham. And here's a couple who have no blood relation to Catherine, yet have spent hours and hours and hours investing in her life. Because that's what the family of God does. So let me ask you, what does being part of the family look like in your life? Do you look any different from your non-Christian neighbours? Are you spending time with people who aren't like you? 
We're going to pray now to end, and I just want to ask you those two questions. How can you embrace the season you're in? And let me say this. If your life hasn't gone to plan, you're thinking, actually, as, as I've been speaking this morning, it just reminds you a lot of your regret. If your life hasn't gone to plan, God still has a plan for you. He can still use you and redeem you. And he is an expert at making all things new. Are you living in limbo? Just waiting for that next step to happen before life begins. Maybe you can't move on until you know there's sin from your past that you kept hidden and you need to confess it and repent it. Fall on to the mercy of God and walk in a new way. How can you embrace the family you're in? Let me ask you, so are you a part of a community here at the church? Are you attending one of the midweek communities? And by that, I don't mean you're signed up on church week. I mean you show up. You go regularly. You don't flake at the first opportunity to pull out. You're investing in people's lives. Are you part of a community? Are you building friendships? Is your first thought when church ends, see if I can be the first person to get out those doors? Or are you thinking, who's someone here who is in need that I could show some love to? Embrace the family you're in.